Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be worshiping together again, uh, especially as we are celebrating the Advent season, focusing on the joy of the birth of Christ. And I know, for those of you that know me, you're probably expecting me to give some kind of a Star Wars reference this morning because the new movie came out last week. Yes, I did see it. Yes, it is wonderful. Uh, And I tried, but Star Wars reference does not fit here. Uh, And I know I usually reference some kind of Marvel or sci-fi movie or something, but I enjoy other movies too. In fact, one of my favorite movies that came out in the past 10 years, actually 10 years ago, uh, was a, a quirky little indie movie called 500 Days of Summer. Uh, and it was the directorial debut of, of Mark Webb. Uh, it had uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Zoe Deschanel uh, as Tom Hansen and Summer Finn, respectively. And the movie chronicles the roughly 500 days of their relationship together. Um, but one of the things that I find really interesting about the movie isn't just the storytelling aspect of it, but the use of emotions and color throughout the movie. When their relationship is toward its end and it's falling apart and Tom is struggling with depression, the colors in the movie are more dull. The the weather outside is constantly just dreary and cloudy and, and just every life itself looks miserable as it lines up with his emotion. However, when their relationship first begins, the colors in the movie are vibrant and exploding. Everything seems rich and alive. And in fact, uh, one of the the most hilarious scenes in the movie is the the protagonist, Tom, has a full-on dance number on his way to work, dancing to Hall & Oates' You Make My Dreams Come True, complete with, like, the little cartoon birds and every Like, it's... It's driven by his emotion because his emotions are affecting his worldview and the way that he even sees the world around him. Now, you might not be as drastic as that you're hallucinating and seeing little cartoon birds whenever you're happy. If you do, that's a whole other conversation. But there is a, a, realist, a realistic understanding that your emotions, your outlook on life are tied together. Your emotions drive your worldview. The way that you feel and understand love and your own life will affect, to some extent, the way that you view the world around you. And that is exactly what we see here in this uh, section of Zephaniah chapter 3. Is the, what we see is the understanding... Uh, our understanding that the Father's love should affect the believer's worldview. <clears throat> that for those who are God's people, knowing the Father's love affects the way you view the world around you. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that God's love for His people should make the believer joyful, full of joy. God's love for His people should make the believer joyful. Not an ignorant, uh, uh, 
ignoring of the, the problems and the chaos that surround you. But in spite of calamity, the Christian can have joy. And a Christian's joyful life displays itself in a life that is full of celebration. And we see that in verse 14. Full of celebration. And it's full of celebration because as we see in 15 through 20, the Christian life is free of condemnation. I know I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm walking away from my usual good Presbyterian three points, only having two points this morning. But a Christian life, a Christian joyful life, is displayed in a life that is full of celebration and free of condemnation. Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for Your love for Your people. We thank You for Your Word that You speak to us, that You have not left us alone and abandoned to figure out what we are doing, but God, You have spoken to us by Your Word. (coughs) You have communicated Your love to Your people. And so be with us now in this time. Pour out Your Spirit in this place. Speak to your people in spite of the brokenness of myself. God, speak through me to communicate your love. And let us be full with joyful hearts. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now for those of you who have not been here with us this Advent season, we've been walking each week looking at a, a different prophet and as it, how the prophets have tied into the thematic themes uh, throughout Advent. We've looked at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. Uh, and this week we're looking at Zephaniah, who is one of the, uh, the prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah. This is after the kingdom is split into Israel and, and Judah. Uh, Zephaniah is, is proclaiming God's word to the southern kingdom of Judah And in the the timeline of redemptive history, he fits in between Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's right in between the two. And it's not a big book, but overall the theme of Zephaniah is judgment. It's condemnation. And it's Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, proclaiming judgment on a rebellious people. First to Judah herself and then to Judah's enemies, and then to Judah and the rebellious nations. And then at the end of all of this condemnation, there are these sweet, tender words of comfort to God's people. And so the first thing that we see is that God's people are called to be full of celebration. Look at verse 14 again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Sing, shout, rejoice, exult. This is a list of imperatives in the Hebrew language. These aren't just casual suggestions. Eh, you should probably think about doing this. No, the, 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 the verb usage These are commands. Do these things. Capital letters. Three exclamation points. These are the ways that God's people are to live. 
Sing aloud. This isn't a, a half-hearted mumbling like when you don't know the words or you're just kind of humming to yourself in the shower. No, no. This, this is uh, that, that feeling like when you're 16 and you go to that concert for your favorite band and you wear out your voice because you're singing along to every song and you don't have the strength to talk the next day. The joy that comes from exuberant, soulful Singing. This is a wholehearted burst of joy. Shout. Proclaim. This isn't, and there was much rejoicing. Yay. This is a guttural victory shout. This is a proclamation. This is, yes! This is excitement. This is joy. Rejoice and exult. The, the literal word for, or the literal translation for exult literally means to be jumping around with joy. This is like those people on the prices, right? When they say, you know, come on down. And they're not, oh, I'm excited. I'm on the prices, right? They're like running down, like doing victory laps and making complete fools of themselves because there is excitement and joy and energy. And this is how God's people are commanded to rejoice that they should be full of celebration. And this isn't an ignorant denial of the struggles that are in the believer's life. As I said, within the context of this book, this command comes after two and a half chapters of condemnation. That there is judgment for sin. There is a consequence for sin. And there, there's not just sin, but there's sickness and pain and death. But for God's people, when you see the good news of God's love, it moves the believer's heart to rejoice. And as the reader, within the context of reading this passage, we don't see it just yet. And even in our own lives, we hear about the, the, the healing and eternal glory of God's love for His people, but in this life, we don't see it fully realized yet. We have glimpses. But it's not yet spiritually and physically tangible just yet. And just like Judah, we still have struggle in this life. There is sin and sickness and pain and death. However, Christian, you are not abandoned in your struggle. As we're about to see in the, the rest of the passage, that the, the covenant God of Israel, the great I Am Yahweh, gives promises to His people. And His love and His faithfulness are why the believer can rejoice. Paul reminds the Philippian church of this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Not sometimes, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. He's here. He is with His people. Give your fears and your worries and your anxiety to Him. Present your concerns with thanksgiving. This is a God who hears your concern. He hears your fear. He hears your prayer. You are not alone. He gives His peace. So Christian, rejoice. Not in the absence of struggle, but in spite of struggle. And in spite of struggle, the Christian's life can be full of celebration because the Christian's life is free of condemnation. Verse 14 is the call to action. This is how the believer should live. But verses 15 through 20 are the reasons why. In verse 15, Yahweh, remember, anytime you see Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, that's, uh, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God, I am, the name that He has given to His people so He may be known. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He's taken away the judgments from His people. He has cleared away the enemies that are trying to destroy them. And the covenant God of Israel, the One who spoke reality into existence, who delivered His people from Egypt, who promised an eternal redemption to come. He says, I am with you in your midst. You are not alone. And so do not fear. God's people can celebrate because He is with them. God is with you. After Judah has been warned of condemnation and the consequence of their sin, the Lord Himself says that they can have joy because He is with them. For the faithful believers of the covenant God of Israel. He has removed judgment. He has removed their enemies. And then, even after all of that good news of taking their punishment and their consequence away, He gives a list of promises. Of not just the removal of judgment, not just the removal of enemies, but a continued blessing. The first thing that he says in verse 16 is do not fear. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. God is reminding His people, do not let fear rob you of your strength. I am with you. Because it's easy in the the midst of 
of the chaos of life, when it feels like everything is falling apart, when you feel like you cannot find your footing, it's easy to fall into fear and to tremble, to crumble under weakness. And the Lord says, do not fear. Why? He follows that up in the next verse. The Lord your God, Yahweh, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. This is a God who promises His presence with His people. His promise is to be with His people. Not as just a, oh yeah, like thoughts and prayers, but no, He is with His people. His people in the Old Testament as He would lead them through the wilderness with, with the Shekinah glory going before His people, preparing a way for them. Intensified in the birth of Jesus Christ as He sent His own Son, God in the flesh, to be with His people. This is a God who is with His people. And He is not weak. He is not impotent. He is mighty to save. And this God of strength will come to save His people. He goes on in verse uh, 17 to give the promise that you are joyfully loved. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you get that? The Lord rejoices over you. Do you realize that God rejoices over you? I think a lot of times we spend so much time fearing God as this wrathful judge waiting to zap any of us that step out of line. And the Scripture says that God rejoices over you. He sings for you. Like a husband singing to his beloved like a father cradling his precious child in his arms. The Lord sings over his people and his love will quiet the soul. The Lord rejoices over his people. And Christian, the Lord rejoices over you. And then throughout the, the rest of the chapter, in verses 18, 19, and 20, he, he re- continues the promise, I will bring you to Myself. He says three times, I will gather, I will gather those of you who mourn. Uh, I, I, will, uh, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. He's re- repeating this theme. I'm going to gather My people. I will bring you to Me. I will bring you in. That is the message that God has for His people. That the effort and the work and the struggle is on His end, not yours. That your redemption is not based on your effort, your work. Because you can never do the work good enough to get to God. And so Yahweh shows His love by gathering His people to Himself. He gives the promise stating, I care for those who grieve. Going back to to verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival 
so that you will no longer suffer reproach. And this is actually kind of a confusing verse in, and throughout different translations. It's translated many different ways because the Hebrew grammar is, isn't exactly clear on how it's laid out, but one of the, the, the best ways that I've been able to understand it is that the word for festival literally translate, it translates to appointed time or meeting. And this is referring to a time when, when God is with His people, such as in the Old Testament, in the tent of meeting, where God was before His people in a pillar of smoke. That there was, the people knew that the, the, that the Lord God was there physically with them. And there are people grieving for a time when the Lord is with His people. And he says, for those of you that grieve for that time when I am with you, I will gather you to Myself. I care for those who are grieving. Grieving for something more than just what this world has to offer. And that's what our faith points us to. That this world is not the end. This is not our stopping point. This is not all that there is. But this is a stopping point. We're here for a time before we are on our way to our eternal destination. We are sojourners heading toward an eternal, heavenly, holy kingdom. And the Lord God says, those of you that, that long for that, that long for more than what this broken world has to offer, those of you who are grieving for connection with God, I will bring you to Myself. I will gather you. I will do the work. And then He reminds His people, saying, I am bigger than your struggles. Look at verse 19. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I love this word, behold. It's another one of those attention-grabbing words in the, the Hebrew. Sometimes it's translated as lo, uh, L-O with the exclamation point. Like you see it in some of the Christmas songs and things like that. It's meant to stand out and, and gather people's attention. Like pay attention to what is about to come. And in my mind, I kind of hear it like a, one of those Billy Mays OxyClean infomercials where he's like, but wait, there's more! That's what this word behold is communicating. But wait, there's more. Behold, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame. I will gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The struggles that God's people do face because let's be honest, this life is full of chaos and struggle and strife and heartache. It would be dishonest to pretend that there is not. But the Lord says, I am bigger than those things. I'll deal with your oppressors. I'll take care of them. They're not an issue. God's love is greater than the chaos in your life. His justice will right the wrong things in this broken world. He is greater than your hurt 
and He is greater than those who hurt you, and He will mend that which is broken. And included in that promise is that He will protect the rejected. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise. This is a God who used a pagan woman named Ruth to be a shining beacon of faith and hope to the nation of Israel. This is the God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who went around healing the sick and the lame. The, the same Jesus who touched the leper, who in that society had been cut off, not just uh, from society itself, but physically cast off. And in the very act of touching this leper, that Jesus communicates and gives worth. This is the same Jesus who was hated by the religious elite because He would dine with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the rejected people of society. This is the same Jesus who took His greatest persecutor, Saul, who was going around killing Christians for their faith and made this persecutor into the greatest evangelist in the early church. God cares for the rejected. God cares for those who hurt and those who are alone. God cares for the the neglected. God cares for the orphan. He cares for the widow. He cares for the immigrant. This is a God of compassion who takes the people that no one else wants and says, you are my people and I love you. And He says, I am with you. And then He gives the amazing promise stating, I will change their humiliation and a celebration. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. He takes their shame, their rejection, and He turns it to praise. These people who were cast out, the Lord will bring in. And He says, I will make you renowned. Not by your work, not by your ability, not by your own effort. But it's all His. He does the work. He restores His people. And these are the promises to God's people through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's love revealed in the Advent season when the Word became flesh. When God the Son took human form and lived not as a a good teacher, not as a moral example. He lived a perfect, sinless life in regard to the law so that when you could not pay the penalty for your own sin, when you were under the condemnation and the guilt and the, the punishment of death for your sin, 
Jesus steps in. And in his love, he steps forward and takes your sin upon himself and gives you his righteousness. That in this exchange, he bears the guilt and the shame and the punishment that you deserve and gives you his status as a holy child of God. And like Judah, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. You are no longer under the eternal penalty for sin. And there are still earthly consequences. There's a punishment for lying and murder and and adultery, things like that, that sin still bears consequence within the earthly realm. But for an eternal consequence, Jesus Christ bears the eternal weight of what you deserved. So Christian, you are free from eternal consequence and condemnation. And one of the most, and, and at least from my own heart, and one of the most amazing chapters of Scripture itself, Romans 8, Paul opens with saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of you who have confessed your sin and bear the name of Christ, you are not under the weight and penalty of condemnation anymore. The Lord no longer sees you as guilty. So Christian, don't view yourself as guilty. View yourself as one living free of condemnation. Because your permanent record now states that you are a holy child of God. And then Paul closes that chapter with these words. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in this created world can take the Father's love away from you. Nothing physical. Nothing spiritual. The brokenness of this world or the struggle of sin within your very own heart cannot take the Father's love away from His people. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that is the joy that Zephaniah calls the people to in verse 14. To sing aloud, to shout, to rejoice and exult. This is the cause for joy that cannot be contained. That Christ takes the broken and the rejected and He takes the grieving and the unwanted And He reminds you that the Father rejoices over you. And through Christ's love, you belong to the Father. And so Christian, 
rejoice. And so as we finish up, I have to ask, is your life lacking joy? Not just a surface happiness, but true, deep down joy in your soul that even in spite of the chaos that you can find joy. Perhaps your heart is trapped under the weight of condemnation and living under the weight of judgment. And so will you look at what the Lord has done? Will you remember that He has taken away judgment, your judgment that your sin deserved? He has taken it away through the blood of Christ and He has promised you His presence. Not because of your effort or your work, but all based on His love. Will your life show the joyful celebration of a life that has been freed from condemnation? Christian, how will you choose to live? Let us pray. So gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that far too often we go back to our, our shackles of shame and guilt. We, we place ourselves back under condemnation even though You have declared us free. And so Lord God, remind us of Your love. Remind us that You rejoice over Your people. That You sing over Your people. And that in Your love, sent Your Son to make us free. And if we are free, then we are free indeed. Let us rest our hope and our trust in the work that Jesus Christ has done. And let us find our joy in Your love for us. It's in the beautiful and precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.